Tonight we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. The story of this chapter is the story of David's success in securing and expanding the kingdom of Israel. But we need to recognize that what we're going to see here in this chapter are not necessarily chronological events. There are some battles that we're going to come across in chapters 10 through 12 that actually precede uh, some of the battles that we're going to see in this chapter. So I think this is probably more likely a summary of David's victory throughout his career uh, that many of which probably happened towards the beginning of his uh, rule over the United Kingdom of uh, Israel. But, but that'll be helpful for us as we look through this just to keep in mind that th- these are not necessarily chronological victories that happened just successively and early on in his career. All right, so let me read the text for us, beginning in verse 1. Let's see what God has for us tonight. This is the Word of God. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for a 100 chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer. King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which, which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. This chapter, we see the success of David, and then we'll see the, re- the reason for this success. And so we're going to uh, I'm going to save the, the, 
theme of the text, what I think is the theme of the text till we get to the end. So um, let's take a look at David's success, the success of David's kingdom to begin with. First, there was success of his military. The success of his military in verses 1 through 14. The report of David's victory over the surrounding areas and even over the, the nation of Israel, the parts that hadn't been defeated yet, um, really comes for us in rapid fire succession. And we have this one word that's translated as defeated, but it's really the, the word that means smite. So maybe you have a, an older translation like the King James that has the word smite. It's used seven times in these 13 verses. It comes from that word which means to smite or to kill or to defeat. Notice verse 1. He smote, he defeated the Philistines. Verse 2. He defeated or smote the Moabites. Verse 3. Then David defeated or smote Hadadezer. Verse 5. He killed or smote 22,000 Arameans. Then verse 9. Toy heard that David smote or uh, defeated Hadadezer. And then verse 10. Uh, same idea. And then verse 13. He returned from the from killing or smiting 18,000 Arameans. So, we just read through it. It's just, he killed, he killed, he killed, he killed, he killed. And these victories can be summarized by looking at four different directions in relation to Israel. In other words, uh, geographical locations with regard to Israel. First, his western enemies. The Philistines in verse 1. If you go due west... Uh, if you go due west from the Dead Sea, you'll run into the five Philistine cities. Gaza, Gath, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And, and so that's just due west of southern Israel, Dead Sea area. Consider the history of the Philistines. I mean, they had been perpetual enemies of Israel all the way back to the time of the Judges. And they have been Israel's number one enemy since the time of Saul's reign. They have been a thorn in Israel's side. And David defeats them almost without a word. It's amazing because uh, really we don't hear of the Philistines again after this victory. I mean, you constantly have these smaller victories where Saul and David are winning and then you come to this one and it's like David defeated the Philistines. And then you don't read anything else about the Philistines other than uh, when it recounts how they used to be an enemy of Israel. And so David defeats them, and we don't hear about them. In other words, it's a decisive victory over his western enemies. And then if you go east, his eastern enemies are the Moabites. In verse 2, there we see that David attacks and defeats his eastern enemies. So if you go just due east from the Dead Sea, you're going to run into the, the land of Moab. And here it tells us in the text that he lines up all the soldiers and splits them into three lines, lays them down on the ground and kills two of the lines and allows another line to live. What that tells you is that David didn't do this to completely eliminate them um, and it's unclear exactly why he didn't do that, why he didn't completely eliminate them. could be that he was a descendant of Moab, right? I mean, his great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was was Ruth. And so it could be that um, he, was, he, he had some extended family from there. I'm not exactly sure what was going on there, but, but the text says that he killed two-thirds of them. And that way they wouldn't be a, a, a perpetual enemy like 
they had been. Now, in chapters 10 through 12, it's, we're going to see that he also defeats the Ammonites, which are also to the east, um, a little bit north of Moab. So if you, go, um, if you go east of the Dead Sea and then north a little bit, you have the Ammonites in that central, kind of just east of the central Israel area. And David defeats them as well. So, so what you're kind of starting to see is that both to the west and to the east, you have David defeating these enemies. And then look at next have his northern enemies, the Syrians, or as the text says, Arameans. Depends on the tra- translation you have, but the Arameans, the Syrians, same group of people, verses 3 through 12. And this is where the, the main focus of our text comes. The ten verses of our text focus on these northern enemies. Directly north of Israel is the land of Syria. And Hadadezer was king of Zobah. Zobah was one of the southern... So if you think of Syria... Uh, one of the southern cities is Zobah, and so they would want to have good control. They would want to have great power there in the northern part of Israel so that Israel wouldn't advance on them, but rather that they could actually gain some ground on Israel. And so this was an important enemy to defeat, and the king of Zobah was Hadadezer. And he apparently had seen what David was doing, winning all these victories all over the place, and so Hadadezer thought, you know what, this is my time to go in and, and capture the, the, the river, it says there in verse 3, and it's capitalized. So maybe it's talking about the Euphrates River, which would have been up near the Syrian region. Whatever the case, David finds out about it in verse 4, and he captures, uh, he, he defeats him. He defeats Hadadezer and captures 1,700 horsemen. Do you see that in the text? Verse 4, 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And if we compare this text to 1 Chronicles 18.4, the correct reading would probably be 7,000. So that 1,700 um, may be uh, an accidental error by one of the scribes um, who, who was copying the Scriptures over the years. And so probably 7,000 7, horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And then it says in verse 4 that he hamstrung the horses. And the way that they would do this is they would just cut the they would cut the hamstrings effect, effectively of the horses, their, their hind legs, they would cut them so that they wouldn't have the ability to push off. Horses are um, great animals for their power, especially in battle. They, they need to have that ability to push off their back legs. It would be like you know, someone in the Olympics trying to run a, a track and field event without <coughs> the use of their hamstrings. They wouldn't be able to do it, right? And so it doesn't kill the horses, but it, it certainly... Um, makes them ineffective for battle. And, and David did that because he knew that, that these would be reused by other people. Now, um, the text doesn't tell us why David did this. Maybe David knew that God had told Moses in Deuteronomy 17:16 that Israel's kings, when they came into power, were not supposed to collect a lot of horses. Right? You, you're not supposed to collect a lot of wives and you're not supposed to collect a lot of money. You're not supposed to collect a lot of horses. And uh, maybe it was because God knew that, that the kings would put their confidence in the horses, in the chariots, in the money. Um, and so he said, don't, don't gather for yourself a lot of them. Or it could be that David knew that, that in his region of Israel, horses were not going to be that effective. In other words, why not just take all the horses and reuse them 
uh, used the horses and chariots for his own battles. Um, those were probably the most advanced um, military um, uh, piece of equipment, so to speak, uh, that they had in that day. So why not use them uh, for his own battle? And probably the reason for that is because the, tra- the, the terrain of Israel did not allow for, for them to use uh, horses and chariots very well. So David defeats Hadadezer, and then in verse 5, David defeats Hadadezer's allies. Um, it says, When the Arameans, or the Syrians, of Damascus, right, Damascus, the capital of Syria, came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of them. And then in verse 6, David secures his victory. It's not enough just to win, because if you, if you defeat the enemy and you just leave it, then, then they're going to, to go back to their normal way of life. It's kind of like what's happening right now in the Middle East. If we take our troops over there and we don't um, set up a, a garrison, a, some, kind of a, um, um, some kind of a force to, to protect us and to protect that region, then it'll just get filled back up with people who, who, um, who hate democracy and so on. And so he sets up garrisons there to secure that land saying, you know, not only are we going to keep these from, from infiltrating us, but we're going to set up uh, place, fortresses that, that will not allow the Syrians to be able to creep back into Israel. In verses 7 and 8, David takes a trophy for Israel's remembrance. He takes a gold shield and some bronze items, maybe as a museum-type item or maybe to put into the, the temple eventually uh, so that they could be reminded of how God had delivered them in this this way. And then in verses 9 and 10, David gains an ally from this other Syrian town named Hamath. Hamath was 100 miles north of Zobah. So remember, we're talking about Syria in the north of Israel. And one of the southern cities is Zobah. And 100 miles north of that is Hamath. And Hamath had constantly been at war, kind of civil war between itself and, and Zobah, Hadadezer's city. And so now when when Hamath and Toy, this king of Hamath, realizes what David has done, he, he comes and be, becomes an ally of, of David. And then in verses 11 through 12, we have a progress report of this growth in wealth. Um, it says that King David also dedicated these to the Lord, that is the silver, gold, and bronze in verse 10. And... Um, and at the end of verse 12, and from the spoil of Hadadezer. So he gains all this spoil from winning these battles, and he, he takes it into the house of the Lord. According to First Chronicles 22, David gathered over the course of his rule 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver. Now, talents are just weights of measurement. So 7.5 million pounds of gold and 75 million pounds of of silver, which is about $200 billion in today's money. So it's not an insignificant amount of money that he received from these battles. And he took all of this, it says in verse 11, and he dedicated them to the Lord. It wasn't used to advance his own personal well-being and build up his own house, but to give to God. So we have David winning battles to the west, winning battles to the east, Philistines and the Moabites, winning battles to the north against the Syrians, and then you'll never guess what the next area is that he defeats. It is to the south. 
the Edomites in verses 13 through 14. We've already seen him defeat some of the other southern enemies, the Amalekites, who were south of Israel as well. But here he defeats another group of people who were a constant thorn on Israel's side all the way back to the time of Moses, the Edomites. Remember when Moses and the people of Israel are going through the wilderness and they need a place of refuge and, and the Edomites are saying, you're not coming in our, in our area. You can go around. Okay? Don't come this way or we'll, we'll have a fight. And um, God judged them for that. But, but Edom is, uh, Edomites are descendants of whom? Esau. Right? Esau is just another name for, for Edom. And so the, the Edomites are, are Esau's descendants and they also live to the south of Israel they have established a land there. And here in verses 13 and 14, we find that, that when David had come back from killing the Arameans, that he put garrisons in Edom. He set up strongholds there. And so he, he establishes his rule over that area. Now... Um, So David securing his border. He secured the border to the west, secured the border to the east, secured the border to the north, secured the border to the south, set up garrisons, strongholds in all those places. So David is, is um, taking these territories that were partially or completely uh, filled or, or occupied by Israel's enemies. I mean, even the land of Israel that God had promised to them was partially or fully occupied by, by their enemies. And David comes in and regains control for Israel and ex- extends his control beyond the borders of Israel so that what? He's kind of got a buffer zone, doesn't he? So that the enemies have to come through his garrisons in order to get to his land. David is a very wise military um, leader. He's, pre- he's preventing future attacks preventing Israel from future attacks. In verses 15 through 18, we see the success of his organization. So first the success of his military, then the success of his organization. We're not going to go through this line by line, but what happens here is the author shows that David's success is seen in his well-organized administration. His military victories brought control, but his, his administration brought unity. And the two words that describe the nature of David's rule are found in verse 15. Would you look in your text with me? So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness. This is significant because David didn't use his military victory for self-promotion, but rather in order to serve the people with justice and righteousness. So his victories were not about him. It was about him serving the people. And I think that David actually got the message of chapter 7, which was that God was the one who, who granted the victory. God was the one who builds the house. David was faithful to his nation. And he lists all these positions of significance, army commander, court historian, priest, secretary, governor, and then chief ministers. So we have the record of David's success that we see there on the surface of the text. But now let's think back through the text 
and see the reason for David's success. Why was it that David was successful? And I think we could say um, three. Let's see here. Yeah, three reasons. Three immediate reasons. So when I say immediate, I mean on the surface. When we just look at things on the surface, why is it that David won? Um, so, so let me just give you an example. How is it that I came to church here tonight? And well, the how is through the vehicle that I that I drove here. Um, but but you could say more um, more distant or more broadly, how I came to church here is because God has led me to this place through a number of 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 ways. Okay. So, so what I'm talking about here is immediately on the surface, what is it that caused David to have success? And the first answer I think we have to say is his military tactics. He is, he is a smart military leader. And he, he knows that, that securing the borders is important. And, and also creating some kind of a buffer zone around that because he has, um, he has volatile enemies all around him who want control of that uh, that land of Israel. Secondly, I, I would say that the reason for David's success was his administrative ability. Right? We see this in verses 15 through 18 that that he doesn't just kind of just expect things to happen. He organizes things in such a way so that people have responsibilities and are um, are responsible for various things. David is able to have success because of his military tactics and because of his administrative abilities. And then thirdly, you say it's because of his faith in God. David was not making a power play here. As one author puts it, uh, I think it's Daniel Berg, or um, excuse me, Robert Bergen points out, he says that God had promised this territory to Israel. So for David to claim it, uh, he's simply doing something that God had already promised in the strength that God provided. So it's his faith that led him to win these victories, that even to even enter into these battles. Right? It's not like David's going, you know what? I got a lot of power right now. Let's see how far my power can can be extended, like some of these emperors, you know, who are taking over uh, huge parts of the world. He's not seeking to do that at all. He's simply trying to secure the nation of Israel and the strength that God provides. So immediately. I mean, we have to admit that the reason that David is successful is because he's winning battles, he's good at winning battles, he's, he's good administratively, and he has faith in God. But I, but I think you probably noticed as we read through and we skipped over this, that the ultimate answer, ultimate reason why David was successful was because of God. Let's see if we can see that clearly in, this, in the text. Did you notice some pivotal statements? about David's success, there are two ways that I know that God was behind it all. There are two ways that I know that God was ultimately responsible for David's success. The first is because of this repeated phrase at the end of verse 6. And maybe this is where your mind immediately went. The end of verse 6, And the Lord helped David wherever he went. So as we get this progress report, David's winning to the west, David's winning to the east, David's winning to the north, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. Then verse 14, at the end of the verse, David, another progress report, he's doing well in the south. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. If any of us are going to have success in anything, in any way, it has to be because the Lord helps us wherever we go. And this is exactly what's happening 
with David. The second reason I know that God is behind it all is because of David's response to the victory. Now, this may not be as clear unless you look carefully at the text. And that is that David responded rightly to the victory. Notice what he does in verse 7. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Okay, remember, David has already uh, made it possible that the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, would be at Jerusalem. And so he's bringing these items to Jerusalem not to build up his palace or to kind of be a, some kind of replica, or not replica, but some kind of item memorabilia that people can come and see. Look at verse 11, the reason I know that. King David also dedicated these to the Lord. So all of these spoils that he's receiving, he's dedicating them to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. So here, David is bringing all these items that he's winning in war to God and offering them to God. Now, we might think, well, that's, that's nice. I mean, that's nice of him to think about that. But notice what happens when the nations come under um, submission to the nation of Israel. Look at verse 2. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, then skipped to the end. And the Moabites that lived became servants to David, bringing tribute. So what happens when a suzerain uh, enters into a relationship with a vassal? What happens when a sovereign nation uh, takes power over a lesser nation? The lesser nation is promised protection and care and by the sovereign nation, and the lesser nation in return has to pay tribute. Some kind of gift needs to come back to the sovereign nation. That's what Moab's doing to Israel. As they now come in subservience underneath the rule of Israel, they pay tribute to David or to David's nation. And then notice verse 6. David put garrisons among the Arameans or the Syrians of Damascus and the Arameans became servants to David bringing tribute. Okay, so, so I don't think this is a, a, a chance or just a coincidence that in the text we have two times, two nations coming in subservi- into subservience underneath the rule of Israel bringing tribute to the sovereign nation. It was an acknowledgement that they were in submission or vassals to their sovereign nation Israel. And I think that's what's happening in verses 7 and 11. David is saying that, God, as I bring these gifts to you, these are tributes to you. These belong to you because you are the sovereign one. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not independent. We belong to you. You are our suzerain, our sovereign God. And so we gladly give these to you, recognizing your authority over us. So the answer to David's success is ultimately God. God is responsible for our success. That's what I think we're supposed to come away with in this text. God is responsible for our success. Even though it seems like on the surface the success that we enjoy results from our own strength, what we need to recognize is that God is behind it all. God is behind it all. And the nature of life is such that that we can take credit for successes that belong to God. 
Isn't that true? That we can at least try to take credit for successes that belong to God. And yet if we follow how God has worked in David's life, we have to acknowledge that the credit for our success really does belong to God. David in chapter 7 has been confronted by God and humbled by God. David, you're not going to make plans for me. I'm going to be the one making plans for you. And in chapter 8, David doesn't forget that God is responsible for his success. That the reason that he has experienced God's mercy and deliverance as a shepherd boy against a lion and a bear, the reason that he has seen God deliver him from the Philistine giant, the reason that he has seen God deliver him from wicked King Saul, the reason that he has seen God give continued deliverance from Israel's enemies, because God was with him wherever he went. He knows what we know based on what we've read in the text, what the author tells us. God gave success to David wherever he went. And I hope you recognize that if we're thinking about David's life in real time, there's no narrator to say, you know, hey David, that was me. Or, David, that was God. Just recognize what just happened there. When you had that victory there, that was God. There's no narrator to tell that to David. David had to learn that on his own. Nobody was speaking from the sky saying, David, you know that last victory over Edom was because of God. Don't forget that. And yet we have the record of what really was happening behind the scenes. It was God. And isn't that helpful helpful for us today? Because we don't... I mean, we live in a very similar situation. We don't have voices from the sky that say, hey, that home sale, that job promotion, that good health report, that spike in your investment, that answer to your prayer, hey, that was God. We don't have that message from the sky, do we? We have to interpret our circumstances based on what we know about how God works. We have to learn from what we already know about God and what God has already told him, told us about Himself and His Word. That's what David had to do. You know, we might, we might kind of just dismiss David and the whole era of the Old Testament saints because, hey, God's constantly talking from the sky. God did talk from the sky on occasion. But if you think about it in terms of the whole narrative of the Old Testament, it's actually very rare, isn't it, that God would speak from the sky. The, the general pattern of life. Just think of the life of Joseph or Job, right? At least up until chapter 38 of Job. You don't have God speaking from the sky. He's required to look at his circumstance, evaluate, evaluate who God is, what he's done, and what these circumstances mean. That's what we have to do today. How has God spoken to us up until this point? How do we evaluate our circumstances based on that? What is going on here? Is this success my doing? Or does this belong to God? Um, so I, I already said that, but I'll put that up for you there for you. Although it seems like our success results from our own strength, God is behind it all. Just a more expanded theme, I would say. Our theme is God is responsible for our success, but here's a more expanded way of saying that. 
Sometimes we just look at our circumstances and think, you know what, that was, that was a great move on my part. I mean, what kind of good strength did it require of me to get to this place? And yet what we need to recognize is that anything that good that comes in life is ultimately sourced in God. Is that not what James says in James 1.17? Every good and perfect gift comes from my own strength my own success, my ingenuity. No. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting of shadow. It comes from God. And that's going to require discernment on our part to be able to, to see that even when God doesn't speak audibly. So, two two applications here. First, take risks for God that are consistent with His revealed plan. Take risks for God that are consistent with His revealed plan. One of the dangers um, that we can run into when we, when we believe very strongly that God is sovereign over all things and that He makes the plans for us and we don't make the plans for Him um, is that we can become passive. And so that's why I say this. Take risks for God. What you're, going to, what you're not going to find in the, the, uh, the faithful believers in Scripture is that they are passive. Instead, they, they take risks based on the revealed plan of God. Here's how Jim Elliott said it, a famous missionary from the 50s to the Aka Indians. He said, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. So... I mean, is God strong? Is God powerful to save? Is God able to do great things? Well, then let's make some attempts in that way and see what God will do. And expect that He will work. Because those who know God trust God. That's what Psalm 9.10 says. Those who know Your name will trust in You, for You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek You. We trust those we know. At least those who are trustworthy. God is trustworthy. We, the more we know Him, the more we trust Him. And, and those who know God find Him to be trustworthy and then they do great things because they attempt great things. Not because they, they kind of float through life waiting for God to, to give His, his um, spiritual zapping. I mean, it's very different if you just think about the two people, Saul and David. Saul was not one to, okay, you know, God's told us that, that we're going to get this land, so let's, let's conquer these enemies that are in our land. Let's secure the borders. He doesn't do that. Instead, he's more defensive in nature. Okay, what, what can we hold on to? He simply wanted to hold on to what he had. David instead wanted to expand the territory, not, not to expand it outside of what God had promised, but, but to expand it to at least what God had promised because David was crazy enough to believe that God's Word was true, that God would actually follow through on what He had promised to Israel. So I would say for us today that God has revealed for us what He wants to do. Let's just think about it with regard to the church. Okay, So the church... God has promised that, that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against Christ's church. And I think that's talking universally. Okay, so if that's the case, then that means that God is calling out people from this world and He's calling them to join the, the universal church. And hopefully the expression of that is the, the local church. So what should we be doing 
in order to see that happen? I mean, should we not be taking risks for God that are consistent with what He's already revealed to us? See, this is different from what David was doing. David was saying, David, God had not revealed where he was going to live. David made that idea up on his own. I'm going to make a house for you. And God says, no, you're not. Okay, so so this, what, we're, what I'm calling for, I think, with, with regard to, and I think it will be consistent with the New Testament, is that, that we're looking at the revealed Word of God, what has God told us to do, and what has He promised that He will do, and then take some risks based on that. You know, if it is true that, that God saves some, and He has many sheep who are not of this fold, and so we need to go out and tell them if that's true, then... then would it not be right for us to develop relationships with unbelievers so that we can have the purpose of eventually speaking the gospel to them and see what God will do? Take risks for God that are consistent with His revealed plan. Then secondly, when success comes, give glory to God. Now, where do you think I drew this out of the passage? Right, what we finished with, which was verses 7 and 11, David takes this, these spoils from the war and he offers them to God at the house of God. He gives tribute to God, showing that he is, he is not taking, he's not taking um, responsibility or credit for the success. God, this is not about me. This is about you. So for, for you and me, it certainly can apply to how we give to the church. I don't think that's the primary application. How we give to the church might be an expression of our faith, and I think often it is. But I think it also includes of, of just speaking on behalf of God, right? Telling others of His mercy and speaking to God about, his, uh, about the praise that is due Him. God, this success that's come... To me, I see this is coming from your hand. You know why? Because you have said that every good gift comes from you. So I know that this is from your hand. And then I tell others about that as well. People in this church and people outside of this church. You know what? God is worthy to be praised. You know what He did for me? You know the success that I now enjoy in whatever way it came. could be something small. could be something huge. The success I now enjoy is because of my God. Not because of anything that I had done. The tribute belongs to God. So I think our tribute comes more than just monetarily. I think it comes with our voice and with our, our actions. How we actually respond with praise to God. So, sometimes in life, or maybe many times for us as believers, it seems like our success results from our own strength. But really, God is behind it all, isn't He? Aren't you thankful that God has all things under control and that God is working out everything for His purposes and that God is good to us always even when it feels like He's not? We serve a great God. Let's pray to Him now. Father, we admit that there are times in our lives, I can think of specific times in my own life when I've taken credit for my own success. And um, Lord, I can think of even times this week when I've done the same. And Lord, I, I want to ask for your forgiveness. 
Lord, please forgive each of us tonight. We have looked at our situation and have seen what has been built, whether physically or or even spiritually. We can take credit for it when all the credit really belongs to You. Lord, You alone are worthy of praise. We are simply tools in Your hands. And, and for us to take credit for our success is as silly as a rake taking credit for getting all the leaves off of our lawn. Lord, we simply are tools used by You to accomplish Your purposes, and we're glad to do it. The very least that we can do for all that You've done for us. Lord, may we not be passive, um, understanding that You are behind it all, but rather may we be active because You are sovereign, that You have much to, to accomplish in this world, and You accomplish it through means. And one of the primary means that You have used is people like us. And so, Lord, we want to take risks for You. Help us to do that, we pray. We pray that the result would be that that we and many others will see Your glory and will honor You through praise and through offering up their lives in service. Lord, we want to offer our lives in service and to, to renew our focus tonight. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.